Hello and welcome to the Self-Narrate Podcast. My name is Brandon. And I'm Jaren. The Self-Narrate Podcast is a production of Self-Narrate, a organization that is devoted to helping people to develop and share their personal stories. Hello again. Today we have stories coming to us from Patrick and Michael Lynn at our most recent storytelling meetup in April of 2023. We'll start with Michael Lynn and transition right into Patrick, and we hope you have a great time listening to both of these fantastic storytellers today. Here's my story about how I started being a storyteller when I was eight years old. Um, my parents... Um, were very estranged and on and off. I know they loved each other, but they just couldn't live together. My dad was a musician, my mother a freelance writer for a newspaper, and I went to 11 elementary schools before I made it to the sixth grade. So I moved around a lot, and I would go with my dad to the piano bars, so I learned how to dance with drunk men <laughs> and drinking a lot of Shirley Temples, and I think I'm still allergic to maraschino cherries. But um, when my parents finally decided to call it quits when I was eight, and I was kind of raised by a, my community of familia, my aunts, my uncles, my grandmothers um, just took their turns watching me. And luckily, I was a good kid. But um, by the time they got divorced, in those days, when you got a divorce, you had to find fault. There was no such thing as a no-fault divorce. And so my parents knew, we want to end this royal. So they both like flew accusations at each other that were pretty bad. And so the judge said, I find both of you guys totally incompetent as parents. You cannot have custody of your child for a year. And in those days, you're too young to know New Gingrich, who was our Speaker of the House in, what was it, the 50s, 60s. It was before they had foster care homes. They had foster care orphanages where they sent you. And you could contract, uh, like I was uh, sent to the Children's Baptist Home, and it was this concrete building. And it was, for me, I was an only child. So suddenly I was Annie. I was in this concrete block building with this concrete block floor with little beds all around and our own little designated dresser. And of course, you had a gang bathroom, so you got swatted by the butt and everyone knew when you were starting to have boobs. So, you know, it was a very great community because I just found it, I was surrounded by friends and girlfriends. So. At night, when lights was out, um, the lights would go out, and then we'd all sneak to the middle of the room, pour the blanket over our head, put our little flashlight there, and we would tell stories. And I would tell the stories about how our parents really loved us. They don't, they don't, they're not going to abandon us. They have to come back in a year, right? The judge said so. <laughs> And so I would tell them stories about we'd get homes in the suburbs and white picket fences and life green grass and great schools and everything would be just lovely. And speaking of schools, this orphanage didn't have its own school. So the 
kids from the foster center had to walk to a neighborhood school and none of the teachers wanted us because we were so much trouble. But there was one teacher who did want us and she promised if we were really good at the end of the year, she would send a taxi to the orphanage, pick us up, take us to her home, and she would make us a full cooked dinner. I swear, I remember that. We worked so hard to get that. But anyhow, back to the storytelling. Um, one day, the resident mother says, Mike Glenn, come down the hall. I need to talk to you. And I thought, oh my God, what have I done? And she sat down and she goes, I've been listening to you telling those stories. It's no big secret. At least it kept you all quiet. You weren't making noise. But I have to tell you something. You've got to stop giving them hope. And she sat down and told me the stories of all these girls, how their parents were never going to come back how she had been a resident mother and watched so many children waste away there, waiting for their, either their parents or being adopted. But she said, I so much enjoy that you're not discouraged. You are one of the few that know who my parents are, and I, regardless of their troubles, I always knew they loved me. And I think that's how I survived. I have a late breaking addition to this episode. This was sent to me by Michael Lynn right before I published the episode. She wanted me to add a postscript to her story, and that is this. My parents did get their act together, and the judge awarded custody to my mother and visitation to my father. They both married younger partners and had long and happy marriages. They each had more children, so after I was 17 years old, I was no longer an only child. I am one of five, all 17 to 30 years younger than me. My mother once said sending me to that foster care orphanage was her darkest time. I assured her that I had a wonderful time. And with that, here is Patrick. Hi. My name is Patrick, and I'm a storyteller. Is that, is that what I needed to do? All right, great. All right, so uh, many of you may know that uh, running is often considered very healthy for you, right? Like, you go out, you got to run, and it's going to give you all sorts of good benefits, everything like that, right? So I've been running ultra marathons and marathons for over 20 years now. And I have to tell you that there are definitely some times when running is not all that healthy. I've been hit by cars. I've been uh, chased by dogs caught a couple of times by the dogs, uh, been held up at gunpoint, and everything else in between. So this is going to be a running story about being held up at gunpoint while on a run. Because, you know, running is good for your health. So here's what happened. I was living in South America at the time. I was living in Paraguay. I was in Asuncion, which is the capital city there. And I was teaching. I'm a teacher. And so I was teaching at the American School of Asuncion. And so there was this one place called the Jardin Botanico, the botanical gardens, where you would go running, or at least I would go running. And it was right near a golf course. So I'd go out and I'd run this loop around. It was about five miles, and you do the loop several times. And like I said, I was training for marathons because it's healthy 
to run these things, right? So one day I'm out there and I'm running around and I'm running and I'm on my last loop. I'm going to be running four loops this day. So I'm going to be running 20 miles. And so I'm getting right at that point. It's like 18 miles in. I'm like, hell yes, I got this. I am so fit. I am so good. I'm running along through the woods. It's fan-fucking-tastic, okay? And I go down and I'm in this back part of the Hardin Botanico. And you're in the woods there for a little while. Now, of course, there was a sign that said that you shouldn't be back there. But I've always believed very firmly that if you didn't read the sign, then it didn't count. So on that day, I purposely did not read the sign, so therefore I could be there. All right? This is called culpable deniability. And so as I'm running down this trail, I'm running along, and I'm getting in my head because I know this course like crazy. So I'm going to be running along, and I'm going to take a sharp left up ahead, and then there's a hill, and it's a bunch of soft sand, and you get up to the top of that hill, and then you start the downhill, and you go out, and then you're in the parking lot, and you get to your car, and it's like the end of the Boston Marathon. Like, this is going to be fucking fantastic, right? So I'm getting in my head. I'm like, yeah, yeah, getting psyched up, getting psyched up. And I see two guys that are walking on this trail where other people are not supposed to be. And they obviously didn't see the sign. And so as I'm walking, running along toward them, they're walking along. And I'm like, okay, so I don't know really what to do because I'm an American in Paraguay. And I don't really know what the, you know, like what's the trail etiquette when you're going to run up on somebody. So I just kind of go slightly to the left and I start to go around them. And as I'm coming up, I just say, pardon? I didn't know a lot of Spanish. And so I come by and next thing I know, I hear a bunch of yelling right afterwards. Now, the first thing that I thought was it was encouragement. <laughs> because that's what, uh, the place that I was in. And I thought, wow, these guys really like runners around here. This is going to be great. And then I heard more yelling, and it didn't sound as friendly. But I'm, I'm, in, the, I'm in the zone, man. All I got to do is get up here about another half mile, make that left-hand turn, go up the hill, go to the top, come down. Right? So I hear the yelling, and I'm like, ah, whatever, man. So I start running. But then I hear the yelling a lot closer. And that was strange. And so then I hear the yelling, and it's right next to me. And I was a little disturbed at this point. And I started to turn to look to go, like, what the fuck? And when I looked, he had a gun out. And he was pointing at me while he was running next to me. And I realized at that point that he had been telling me to stop. And I hadn't stopped. And now he's pissed. And immediately I went, oh, no, I hablo espanol. I spoke some Spanish, but I was going to play dumb. It is one of the better things to do when there's a gun in your face to play as dumb as possible. So now I'm standing in the middle of the woods in some back of the Hardin Botanico with a man who has a gun pointed at my face, who is now yelling at me about why the fuck didn't I stop. And so I'm going to play the dumbest gringo ever. And I'm just like, no, I blow Spanol, no. And his buddy catches up because there were two. And that guy stays about like 10 yards behind me. So now I'm standing there, and he's yelling at me, he's cursing at me, and everything like that. And so I just, as most people, when you don't understand a language, you just try to smile and imagine that they're compliments. So he's yelling at me, and I realize, oh, shit, this is bad. And I was like, all right, okay, okay. Like, what do you want? And so he starts looking at me, and he's like, all right, I'm running. I don't have a lot. I got some shoes on. I got some shorts. I got... 
It was way back in early 2000s. I had this little hip pack. It was great. It was from Camelback. It was fantastic. Everybody's brought back fanny packs. I was rocking it back then, okay? So I've got this thing around my waist and everything, and I'm like, all right, what do you want? And he looks at me, and he's like, ah, tus lentes, and my sunglasses. And I'm like, uh, okay. So I give him my sun. They were Nike sunglasses, and they were very nice. But I gave them my Nike sunglasses. And then he's like, to, you know, he starts saying shit, and he's like, all right, I want your hat. I'm like, okay, you can have my hat. Fine. And then he says, all right, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and he starts, the other guy's like looking, and I turn, and the other guy's got a knife out, and he's standing there like watching the trail. And he's kind of like giving the intimation like, hey, hurry the fuck up. You know, and this guy's sitting there, and he's pissed because he had to run, because apparently most people don't like running. And now that I made him run, he's pissed off about this. And so he's yelling at me, and he wanted my hat, he wanted my sunglasses, and then he wanted my camelback. <sighs> Do you know how hard it was to get that fucking thing in Paraguay? All right, like I had to have that ordered from the States. I had to go through like a private courier service because they would steal stuff out of the mail if you didn't, all sorts of things. And I'm like, for fuck's sake, seriously? Fine, so I take it off, and then I realize my keys to my car are inside that bag. And I don't know if you can imagine, but in Paraguay, I kind of stood out. All right? I'm bone white, got a bunch of tattoos, and I came to the park, and I ran every weekend, which is exactly what they tell you not to do, to do the same thing every single week. So I'm like, shit, they know where my car is, and my keys to my car are in this bag. Shit. But what are you going to do? Because I teach rhetoric for a living. Like, I teach AP English language. I teach rhetoric. And I've told my students this for years. Um, a weapon is an amazing rhetorical tool. All right? So if you want to convince somebody of doing something else, you have some sort of weapon in hand. You know, Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly and carry a big stick. In this case, they had the gun. So as a rhetorical tool, they get whatever the fuck they want. So I give him the bag, and I'm like, shit. And I'm standing there, and then... He looks at me, and he looks me up and down, and he goes, tus championes. Those are my sneakers. Those are my running shoes. You want to know how hard it was to get that fucking pack in Paraguay? Let me tell you how bad it was to get those New Balance running shoes in Paraguay. And if anybody in here knows any runner, you get religiously, religiously affiliated with your shoes and the brand of shoes and the model of your shoes and everything like that. And I simply, this is the only time I said, I said, in serio? Like, for real? You want my shoes? And the guy was like, do championess, all right, now. And I'm like, all right, fine, fine. Now, I had been running 18 miles. And now I had all sorts of adrenaline in my system. And now I'm being asked to bend over and untie my shoes. My whole body started cramping. So I started to bend over, and I'm, you know, not feeling it. As I'm bending over, I look like the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz at this point. So my legs are locking up, and I reach down. My hands are shaking. I'm sorry to say, I was not perfectly calm during this whole thing. All right? So I'm like, and so I'm reaching down, and of course, I double-knotted the fucking shoelaces. And my hands are shaking, and they're covered in sweat, and I can't get the fucking things undone. And I didn't really want to give them my shoes anyway, because my first favorite performer was Elvis. Okay? And my first favorite song was Blue Suede Shoes. And you can do anything that you want to do, but oh, honey, don't take my fucking running shoes. And so I had to sit there and try and bend over, and I'm trying to undo them, and I get one off, and I go to the other one, and I'm trying. The other guy is saying, rápido, rápido, rápido. He wants him to speed up, the guy with the knife who's standing on the trail, because they're worried somebody else is going to come along. 
And so I'm trying to get this, and I'm like, uh, uh, and he starts yelling at me, and that does not help. If you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to do something and then somebody starts yelling at you, it never helps. It never makes the process better, ever. So I'm sitting there, I'm struggling, I'm struggling, struggling, and just when I thought I was about to get this thing like undone, all of a sudden he went, ora, and I feel this crack on the side of my head. And for a half second, I thought, is that what the bullet feels like? And what it was is he had pistol whipped me upside the head to get me to hurry up to take my shoes off. (laughs) <laughs> it didn't help. It didn't help. But I somehow at that moment, right after little stars and everything like that, I was able to finally get the shoelaces untied. And then I gave him my shoes. Now, the whole time, I was married at the time, and I had a wedding band on. And the whole time, I was kind of surreptitiously trying to hide the wedding band because I didn't want that to be taken. Now, my wife at the time was actually in the United States for a friend's wedding, and we had just found out a few months before that she was pregnant with our first child. And so I'm alone in this country at this point. And I'm sitting there, and the only thing I've got is this wedding band. So I was doing all sorts of things, like putting my thumb over it and everything like that, like holding it up like so and doing this and everything. And finally, we stand back. He's got my sunglasses. He's got my hat. Got my camel back. Now he's got my shoes. And he's pointing the gun right at me, and he's shaking. And I know what he's doing. He's doing the mental calculus. What's it going to be easier to do? Pull the trigger or let me go? All the while, his buddy down the trail is still yelling to hurry up. Dale, dale, do it, do it, do something. And in that moment, my entire world coalesced into a single tiny little point on the end of that gun. And it was right then that it was going to be one way or the other. And he shook his hand still, and he said, Vaya, told me to go. And he pointed in the opposite direction of the way that I wanted to go, which was toward my car. So he pointed back toward the trail, toward the guy with the knife. And so I turn, and I start to walk, and then, when I'm not looking at him anymore, the other guy steps way off of the trail. Because I know the other guy's still pointing the gun. And now I know because this guy just moved out of the way. And I think he couldn't pull the trigger looking at me in the eye. He's going to do it as I'm walking away. I get past the guy with the knife. He just kind of stands there looking at me with the knife off on the side of the trail. And I get down. I was like, oh, he wanted me to get by his friend so that he won't shoot his friend by accident. This must be the plan. And so I start walking, and then I start running a little bit. I'm in socks on a trail in the middle of Paraguay and nowhere, right? And I start running, and I'm looking up, and there's this slight left turn in the trail. And I'm thinking, all i got to do is make it there. And at the same time, I started having the weirdest thoughts. It went back to, like, middle and high school math, which I was never good at. And I started having thoughts like, if suspect A pulls trigger and shoots at suspect B, will suspect B hear the gunshot or feel feel the bullet first? Will the bullet be traveling faster than the speed of sound? And at one point, so I'm I'm doing all of this as I'm like, I'm in socks, and I'm running, and I'm like, so I start running more, and I get around the turn, and I just, I keep running. I'm running. I'm running like hell. Forrest Gump had shit on me. 
And so I'm running and I'm running and running and running. And finally I go. I don't even know how long it was. I go and I finally stop and I just have to bend over and I glance back. And obviously there were a couple of turns. There was no more line of sight. They were gone. I was gone. And I bent over and I just started dry heaving. Just in the middle of the trail. I'm dry heaving in the middle of the trail in the middle of nowhere. And then I started getting pissed. Because they were heading in the direction of my car. And they had my keys. Right? And I grew up building cars and working on cars. And that's one thing that I'll take Americana to the grave. I'm an American man who loves my fucking car. I don't care what car it is. I love my car. And I was like, damn it. And so I realized that if I turned directly right and just ran straight through the woods, I might be able to like beeline straight through there and cut the tangent. More math. And cut the tangent and get to the parking lot before them. So I do it. I just turn and I look into the woods. There's no trail. I'm in socks. And so I just running through the trail. And so I'm running, I'm running, I'm running, I'm jumping over things, and I'm just a wild man. At some point there was like a bunch of broken glass. Why? I have no idea. Because. And I'm running and I'm running and running, and I'm just in this like tunnel. I'm like, oh, I want to get to my car. Now, the Harding Botanicum, had like a little area in the middle where there was like exhibits and things like that and everything like that. So I'm, I'm like, maybe I'll run into that. And I'm running and running and running. And I'm in such a zone. And then all of a sudden, the, the trees start to clear. And I'm like, yeah, I'm free. And I look, and there's a fucking lion right in front of me. There was a lion. I just survived being held up at gunpoint. And now I'm looking face to face with the lion. I was not hallucinating. It was a lion. It took me about three heartbeats, which at the time was an enormous amount of time, to realize that there was a fence between me and the lion because there was a zoo in the Hardin Botanico. And I'm looking at this lion just hanging out in his little crib. You know, he's just hanging out and he just kind of looks up and goes, and I was like, <laughs> and I realize I can get around him. So I'm like, oh God, thank God. And so I run around the lion's den. So I was out of the gunshot and near the lion and all this other stuff. And then I start running right through the little zoo. And there's little Paraguayan kids with their parents, like, walking through. They got balloons and shit. And they're running. And now there's this half-naked American just running through the zoo. I don't know if any of you have seen the classic movie, uh, American Werewolf in London. But there's a scene where the guy wakes up in the zoo next to the wolves, and he walks out, and he grabs some balloons from a little kid in London. And the little kid goes running to his mom and goes, Mama, a naked American man stole my balloons. And that's what I felt like at that moment. I just didn't have any balloons. So I'm running through all of this, and I finally get down, and I get over the top, and I look down, and my car is still there. And this was glorious. And I start running down. And there were a couple of kids who were always in the parking lot who would wash and watch your car while you were running, right? And I always paid them well. I gave them 20,000 guaranias to wash and watch my car. That was $4. And they were absolutely, you know, always looking out for my stuff. And I saw them, and I'm like, ladrones, ladrones. And they're like, okay. You know, just like looking at me. And after all of this, I end up running back to the car. I don't have my keys. The thieves never showed up in the parking lot. And the second part of the story, if ever it gets continued, is the part where I finally had them go run off and get the Policia Nacional. The Policia Nacional came over. They looked at my car. They said, it's locked. We can't do anything. And then said, well, we can take you to the station. I get taken to a station, like, straight out of a 1980s movie where there's, like, a Policia Nacional guy sitting under a half-broken fan just, like, looking at me, wanting me to sign documents, un documentario, blah, 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 and everything like that. I ended up calling the embassy 
there was a, a convicted felon who was a car thief that they enlisted to help me get into my car, to get my keys, to my house, which were in the trunk, which I had to go to my house to get my spare car keys to come back to, and everything like that. And so it was quite a day. It was quite a day. And so if nothing else, next time that someone says that running is particularly healthy, know that there's a little bit of an asterisk involved. Thank you. <laughs>